Our New Testament lesson this morning is found in Hebrews chapter 4. You'll find the entire lesson printed from chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 11. We are going to read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4 and refer back to verses 7 through 19 as an elaborate illustration of the point that's being made. So listen carefully to God's word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we confess that in all the words that are spoken in our world, that your word is reliable and true. You are steady and steadfast, and you never forsake your word of promise. And so we look to you this morning, that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are here to listen. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Dan Early is a behavioral economist at Duke University. And behavioral economists study interesting things. He studies the intricacies of human motivations and decision-making, but he especially studies human decisions that are made when those decisions are not made in our own best interest. So one of the things that caught Dan's attention was that many people, especially in the knowledge sector of the workplace, many people in that sector of society we're spending over 25% of their day managing emails. This may be familiar to some of you. Early was intrigued by that, so he began to apply his critical matrix to it, asking whether we could see some room for improvement. Now, one of the things that he noted in his analysis, the main problems, was that every email message that was received, that is, whether it was junk or whether it was something critical, pinged the recipient. That is, they received a notification that it was there in their inbox. And once notified, the average worker only takes six seconds to open the email. So whatever the message is, whether it's junk, whether it's spam, whether it is the church newsletter, or whether it is from your boss or from a client, six seconds. And Early notes that this creates one massive problem for us, though. 
that in giving everything equal attention, it's hard for us to really know what's important. We get lost in a sea of words and messages. And this is the crisis that we face today because it's not just email. We have hundreds of words and messages that vie for our attention every day. There is email. There is Snapchat. There are phone calls. There is WhatsApp. There is every kind of communication available to you. Text, and then you also have cable news. Each day we're bombarded with messages that vie for our attention, and it makes it almost impossible for us to know what's truly important. In this sea of words, there's also the voice of God. Three times we find that voice affirmed in our passage, quoting from Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, that is God by his Spirit speaking through the Scripture, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God, too, is speaking in this cacophony of messages. But how do we know it's really important? How do we come to a proper estimate of it? In verse 2, you'll note, we learn something about God's communication. The word good news is used. This is simply the word gospel. It appears many times in the Bible. But the word gospel is an interesting one, and it's important for us to understand it. Because the word gospel was specifically used in the ancient world by royalty, particularly emperors and rulers, those who were in power. And the word gospel was used to announce important events that impacted everyone. And so the word gospel was not an everyday word. When it was used, it grabbed people's attention. It was used to announce things like the birth of a child in the emperor's home. Or it was used to announce a victory in a military contest. That a gospel was proclaimed. We won. A child has been born. This is what a gospel is. It's a priority communication. It was used to recognize something significant and something that was changing the course of things. And so God intends to grab our attention. In all the messages of the world, and all the words that are spoken, this word is a priority. This word has a significance beyond every other word that's spoken. So what's critical for us this morning as we approach Christmas is to understand what exactly does God say? What is he saying today? What has he said yesterday and what does he continue to affirm today? In all the, world, in all the words that are spoken, what is God's speech? And in verse 1, we see that he speaks a promise. He invites us today to enter into his rest. Follow with me. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. The paragraph begins in this way. The promise remains today. Therefore, while the promise still remains, while the promise still stands, that we can enter his rest, God is continuing to extend that promise. This promise is not good advice about how to have your best life now. This promise is not good moral instruction about how to pull your life together and become the best possible human you can be. No, rather, what is happening here 
This is not good instruction. This is not good advice. It is good news. That is a promise. And that promise demands our attention. And it also requires a response. We find out in verse 3 that God is inviting us into his rest. And that is something that we can experience now. For we who have believed enter that rest. But then when you move forward to verse 9, you also find that there is a rest yet to come. An eternal Sabbath awaits. And so it's important for us to keep these two tenses and these two experiences. That we do enter rest today upon belief, by faith, we enter into rest. And yet there is a rest that awaits us ahead in the future. Because you see, on the seventh day of creation, God entered into his rest. And his rest is his enthronement, his reign. And when we come to the rest of God, we enter into a place and into a condition. That the rest of God is his throne room. It's the place where he rules, where everything is right. And we enter into that place to experience a condition, a status of being at peace. This is what God offers to all those who enter into his rest by faith, that we come into his house as a son and as a daughter. And we enter that rest by faith. This is what he said in verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. Now, one of the main questions for us, though, is what do we direct our belief to? And why does belief, why does faith allow us to enter into the rest of God. If you look with me closely at verse 10, it's important for us to understand the argument. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Then verse 10, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now it's been the habit of modern translations of the Bible to translate verse 10 for whoever has entered and it can sound anonymous that anyone can enter into God's rest it's interesting because if you were to look back at older versions translations there's always interpretation involved when it comes to translation but the old KJV which it's not my habit to break out for you uh, translates this he that enters into that rest because it is a singular pronoun And every time the church is referred to in this passage, it's plural, us, we. But here there is a singular. And so the question is, what does that refer to? Or who does that refer to better? And the who here is Jesus Christ. He that enters into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his You see, what's important to affirm for us is that there's only one who can properly enter into the rest of God. And there was one who was sinless. There was one who was qualified. And yes, that's the great high priest who's gone before us. The pioneer and author of our salvation as we've seen in the preceding chapters. And Jesus has trampled down death. And then by placing our faith in him, the one who has entered into the rest of God we now enter into that same rest. And we are qualified because of him to share in that rest. 
That this is what faith does. It unites us to the mediator, the one who stands between, the one who has entered into that rest. And he offers to share with us all that belongs to him. And so the most critical question for us when it comes to this season, as we consider who Jesus is and all that he has done, the critical question is, have you believed? Have you placed your trust in him? Have you entered into God's rest? And then the second corollary question that's perhaps even more important for us is are you believing? Because we see that there were those who said that they believed and then they didn't continue. And so critically, we have to ask, are we believing? Are we entrusting ourselves to him today? The promise is that we will enter God's rest in Jesus Christ. That is God's word that he speaks for us today. But in the preaching of the gospel, we discover this promise, but yet the promise also exposes us to a potential problem. Follow with me in the second half of verse 1 into verse 2. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, referring to the Israelites. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And this is the problem, the potential problem, that assails all those who hear the message of the gospel. Refers to the history of Israel, particularly to chapters In Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, this is the incident at Kadesh Barnea, where Israel has been brought out of Egypt, they've come through the wilderness, and now they are on the edge, about to enter into the land that God had promised to give to their possession. The spies are sent into the land, and then they bring back reports. Twelve spies went, eleven negative reports returned. It's interesting because their reports are convoluted. They say, well, the land is fruitful. It's flowing with milk and honey. They bring back clusters of grapes. But then they also bring back the report that we can't go in. The people are too great. There was only one, a man named Caleb, who brought back a different word. And he says, no, if God has promised it, then we go in and take it. It's a fruitful fruitful land that God is entrusting to us. The people receive these reports, and then they have to make a decision. And what we learn, sadly, in Numbers 13 and 14 is that they collapse. Despite having received the promise of God, they hear of the obstacles that were in front of them, and they then disbelieve the promise They did not trust that God was going to make good on what God had sworn that he was going to do. And so in verse 19 of chapter 3, we read this. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. One of the most practical questions for us is to ask and to consider how exactly does unbelief take root in our lives? How does it happen in the life of the church? And from Numbers 14, you may find it helpful to turn there. We see that in the reports of the spies, 
that the congregation then began to give voice to what the spies have said. The human opinions were circulating that the obstacles in the land were too big and that those obstacles were not going to be overcome by God's promise. This is what they thought. They indicate that there's no way that God can do it. The contradictory messages are received and they find fertile soil and begin to grow. And then in chapter 14, in verse 1, this is what we read. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And so the unbelief moved into despair. They heard the report, the unbelieving report from the spies, and they fall into despair. But then I want you to note where despair turns. If you follow in verse 3, our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? The despair translates into fear, and the fear translates into cynicism. They were willing to sign back up for slavery and harsh bondage in Egypt. That would be better than where we presently are. And friends, this is how unbelief takes shape. In chapter 3 and verse 13, what we learn is that this is the deceitfulness of sin. That's what the author calls it. That we can be deceived by our despair. We can be deceived by our fear. We can be Deceived to embrace cynicism and unbelief because we think the obstacles are too big. The obstacles mount up against what God's promise is and we then collapse. And friends, God has extended tremendous promises to us in Jesus. What he promises us in Jesus is that he's a faithful and good high priest who perfectly identifies with us. And that he is the one who can cancel all the condemnation that your sin and my sin deserve. And yet in our experience, we can find that our sins are more convincing. We can believe that we are cut off. That there is no Savior who can possibly rescue us. And our guilt can have that kind of power. The accusation that comes from our sin can cut us off from believing. We can fall into despair and we can fall into cynicism. Or we can look at the promise of God about this eternal Sabbath. It is a vision of a world that is corrected and made right. That is where the rest of God falls upon the earth and creation is completely healed and restored. That once again, heaven and earth are one and reunited. And that vision gives life to many Christians. And yet for some, as they look out upon that vision, they despair. And they say, it will never happen. Why is he tarrying so long? Why is he so far off? And can God actually fix the world? These are the promises we receive. And it can be easy to fall into despair. And that despair turns into further fear. And that fear then translates into cynicism. And so what do we do? What do we do about that potential problem that assaults our faith? Because please note, this assaulted the church of the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews says that we are like them. We share in that same frame, that same dust, that same vulnerability. 
That though they had seen the great things of the gospel, though they had heard the word preached, that hearing was not joined to faith. So what do we do about that? If you follow in chapter 3 and verse 13, but exhort, or you could also say encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the first admonition, that we encourage one another every day, as long as it is still called today, that none of us be hardened by sin's deceit. And then follow in, verse, in chapter 4, in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Speaking of the rest that Jesus Christ has brought and made available to us. And this is the practical advice for those in that vulnerable situation. Where our fear and the deceitfulness of sin can drag us away from faith. This is what we must do, that we need a community life that encourages us, that calls us to press on, not to add other things to our faith, but that we continue to strive in faith, strive to enter that rest. And the way we enter that rest is by belief and trust in Jesus. And it is an active trust. It is a living trust. It is an abiding trust. It's not a transaction that we take care of one time in life and then leave behind us. But it is the ongoing transaction in which we entrust ourselves to a Savior who never fails us and will never forget us and will one day come and reunite and consummate all of his promise. And so we need to receive this promise, trusting that promise. And in this, we know the true joy of Christmas, the rest of God that he allows us to enter into because of his faithful servant who has gone before us and entered into that rest. And so be believing, be trusting. Come to him this morning. Let's pray.